Good day. You are listening to the 101st edition of Free City Radio. Uh, it is Wednesday, the 16th of March, and I'm your host in Montreal, Stefan Christophe. I wanted to um, take this opportunity um, here in March to share an interview that I recorded in uh, March, actually, in New York City. Uh, this is a conversation with street artist and author Seth Tabachman. Uh, Seth has long been uh, central to grassroots social movements in Lower Manhattan, uh, particularly around housing rights, but also has worked on a number of broader campaigns, including campaigns for climate justice and against police violence and brutality. Seth's work has traveled globally and has been important to social movements, radical action around the world. This was a conversation I recorded uh, in the context of a visit to Lower Manhattan to share uh, stories and participate in some events about the Quebec student strike in 2012. And this is a conversation that I had um, in person with Seth. I thought it would be meaningful to highlight his work um, because it is ongoing. And I think that this interview really echoes the urgency of a lot of the issues that Seth raises, particularly around growing inequality, uh, both in Canada and the US, but also the ways that autonomous social movements organize and respond to structural injustices. I think Seth's work is persistingly important um, as a movement artist. Uh, he's been celebrated uh, internationally, but also has consistently been part of grassroots organizing. During the pandemic, he um, drew a number of works that spoke to uh, both the structural inequalities that have been illustrated in terms of who's impacted by the pandemic and also the precarity of a lot of workforces that were forced to be on the front lines and did not receive the same amount of celebration. Um, Seth is part of the World War III Illustrated Collective and has published a number of books with AK Press. Um, I appreciated the tone and the conversation in this exchange, so I wanted to share it with you here this week on Free City Radio. So here's my conversation from the archives with Seth Tabachman. We're in the Lower East Side of New York with Seth Tabachman, and um, first I would just ask you about this neighborhood um, you've been here since the late 1970s. Um, it's your home. Uh, you've done a lot of work about gentrification and uh, housing rights. Um, what do you think are some of the, the key issues facing this area of New York City um, where yourself and so many artists have lived? Um, what is life like for an artist today in the Lower East Side of Manhattan? Um, I think that... Um the real, the real difficulty of this community now is that it's so damn expensive and that that really strangles um, the life of an artistic community. When I came here, it was, I, I came here because I could afford to live here, very simply, and thousands of other young people came here because they could afford to live here. And that was the basis of an artistic community where we could try all kinds of things that um, might or might not be lucrative and experiment with things. And at this point, you know, young people coming here 
have to already have a pretty heavy income to live here. And I think that is really going to limit the future of artistic creativity in lower Manhattan or even in Brooklyn and the Bronx if um, housing is not affordable to young people. Those of us who are here, you know, we've acquired certain protections, you know, rent stabilization or other people have squatted buildings, acquired ownership of those buildings. So there are many of us here who've acquired a certain permanency um, essentially through cheating the system so that we're not paying market rate rents. But that was many years of work on the part of those individuals and that's not available to younger people. So I think that we really need to um, make New York City affordable again. In terms of the financial crisis, you've addressed that in your work, understanding the crash. Um, what are some of the key points uh, that you felt it was necessary to communicate um, about the American financial crisis that you feel were not conveyed in the mainstream media and political narrative about what happened? Well, the mainstream media uh, conveyed pieces of the picture and very often didn't put them together. It was not completely wrong in its portrayal of the situation. Um, I think the important point about the financial crisis, it's the result of um, allowing capitalism to function as it pleases. The notion that if you let people make money any way they can, this will produce a more wealthy or a more functional economy. And of course, um, we know this isn't true. Um, and it was the myth of a free market economy in which everybody prospered, in which a rising tide would lift all boats. Well, actually, no, a rising tide means most of us get drowned. And, um, you know, this is what we've had, is we had, you know, the ability of, you know, a small number of individuals to make more and more money off the system while everybody else um, was in a greater and greater disadvantage. And they were able to extend that and finesse that through a complicated credit scheme that allowed people to live as though they were middle class when they really weren't earning enough money to live as, the, as a middle class person in this economy. And so what's important I think now is that that failed, that collapsed, that was a disaster. And there's a failure to address what happened, that we're um, six years into this, eight years perhaps into this, and there's nobody within the structures of power really addressing the problem, that they've, they've succeeded in avoiding it and avoiding it and avoiding it in a way that, um, you know, for my parents' generation in, in the 1930s, the government stepped in and changed the way it did business. and. I think that um, we have had the development over the last 30 years of an incredible ability on the part of people in power to protect their interest, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, discredit any opposition, to create um, you know propaganda victories, you know and false theatrical politics like uh, some of the some of the Tea Party stuff we've seen where 
they basically created a pseudo movement um, to protect their interests. And because of that, even when things aren't working, they're able to prevent any resolution of that. So the problem doesn't get addressed, the problem keeps stretching out and essentially getting worse. And I think that we're getting, you know, deeper and deeper into a hole. And I think that's um, even more true with the environmental questions, that you have self-evident problems. Uh, you have, you know, uh, nuclear radiation washing up from Japan. You have um, every six months a city somewhere in the world gets flooded. Mm. Uh, you know, every six months. So this would make it clear that obviously what we have isn't working. But the political machine is incapable of even addressing reforms, even saying, you know, okay, let's try this, let's try that, let's tinker this, because the ability of the corporate interests to protect themselves has become so sophisticated that they will, um, they will either create a you know, crazy right-wing movement to intimidate everyone, or they'll create, um, you know, a pseudo-liberal movement that does nothing. You know, that they're so good at deflecting this, they're so good at spin control that they're not dealing with the fact that we're now in a situation that can't be spun. We're in a situation that actually doesn't work. Like, no matter how good a face you put on it, it's actually not working. It's actually falling apart. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we're waiting for, you know, people to step up and create some alternative. I think everybody is looking for that. Um, there's, there's a lot of disillusion. There's a lot of confusion because there isn't an alternative coming forward. I think some people thought that was going to happen with Obama and he very disastrously did not. Um, and I think maybe it's a time for people to come forward and say, okay, what is it we want now? What could we do differently? And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we, we don't have a lot of time left. Mm -hmm. So... One, one of the things you detail in Understanding the Crash, that book you uh, released with writer Eric Larson, and also in some of your work around Sandy uh, uh, here in New York City, the, the storm, were uh, moments, sparks of what you were talking about, people coming together and making alternatives um, through the grassroots. Could you maybe talk about that in relation to your work and some, some examples? Um, I've always been really inspired by um, community organization and people, um, people taking charge of their situation. I feel like um, the political system, you know, distances us from actual political power, whereas on a neighborhood level we can actually have political power by addressing something immediately. And you cut through a lot of the nonsense by dealing with something that's right in front of people. So I was very inspired, for instance, when I first moved to the Lower East Side by the Tenants Committee in my building. And it's largely because of that Tenants Committee that I have a home. You know, that um, we had a rent strike against our landlord and um, effectively got into the rent stabilization program and that's protected my ability to live here ever since. Um, I was very inspired by the squatter movement in New York City in the 80s and 90s where we seized 
um, hundreds of uh, abandoned buildings and renovated them and made housing for people and eventually got the legalization of some 13 buildings. Um, the community garden movement, which really started in the 70s when a lot of the Lower East Side was burnt out and a lot of the Bronx was burnt out and people decided to take vacant lots and beautify them and you know plant gardens in those lots and um, then acquired a kind of de facto ownership and then had to struggle with the city as the city tried to um, sell those lots to developers. and we had a movement which was able to force the city to um, put hundreds and hundreds of lots into essentially the um, the parks department so that people have those permanently. Um, and then um, after Hurricane Katrina, we had, um, you know, the massive volunteer efforts as people went down to New Orleans and tried to fix stuff up. And I, you know, at a point when the government and when particularly the, the Red Cross, the American Red Cross, was completely failing. And so people were able to get in there and do something for people. And then um, we had a similar effort after Hurricane Sandy here in New York. So I think those are areas where people regain the authorship of their lives. They're no longer uh, doing what they're told. They're making their own decisions. I think there's a sense in which, although we have you know, a ritual of self-government in terms of elections, we actually don't decide a damn thing. Mm -hmm. And um, people need to be put back in charge of their environment and that they'll then, I believe, make you know, they'll struggle with it, but they'll in the long run make responsible decisions about their own environment. I think it's very hard for somebody to make responsible decisions about somebody else's life. Um, whereas people who are making decisions about their own lives, about their own environment, about their own community, are going to make responsible decisions in the long run because they have to live with the results. And in the relation of that to art, I've, you know, for most of my life been in this sort of odd space that you and I have been discussing Stefan of like the relationship of politics to culture um, and um, one of the things that I've always understood about art is that it was about the subjective experience of the person who produces the art. Um, it's a big part of what it is that you can't really do art about something you don't understand on a human level. Um, you could try, but it, it is probably going to fall flat. And that's actually um, something that can inform your politics really well, and it's something art has to offer politics, which is that um, we have to make our political decisions in light of a human subjectivity, in light of things we actually understand and actually do. Um, so that the sort of you know, the idea of doing art and politics, of doing political art, is to me the idea of the reintegration of the individual with society, that we've developed a society where we have an individuation which is separate from our environment, that where 
there's, you know, your private sphere, and we are told that that has nothing to do with anything that's actually happening to you, that exactly what is your private sphere, what is your business, you know, and what is your business and what's not your business and what's my business and what's our business, you know, um, that these things have all been fractured and, you know, that fracturing allows for all kinds of crime and abuse to take place because things aren't really reconciled. So that I feel like the role of art in politics is that reintegration of the individual with his world, where um, what I experience and what I objectively am has to become connected. That I have to see myself as I am and I, that means I have to understand my social role but also my society has to understand my subjective experience. You know, I have to, I have to come to a meeting point with other people and that that's where art and politics become one thing, is where we have a meeting point with society. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where my world and your world are connected. Mm-hmm. Where I, I'm not living in my own world where you don't exist. You know, like there was a point when I was a teenager when I was very alienated and depressed and angry where I actually started to theorize that other people didn't really have thoughts that I had no way of knowing that any other people had thoughts or feelings. So that really maybe I was alone in the universe and the, I was just looking at a series of illusions or automatons that were there to fool me to think that there were other people, you know. And, and it's a form of insanity, but it's not that far from the way a lot of people feel all the time, you know. Um, and so, you know, the notion I have of art at this, and, and it's also very much the process that, you know, in, um, you know, 20th century art was encouraged, an artist was encouraged to think that way, to, to view things entirely subjectiv- subjectively, mm. to, you know, um, to say, okay, this is this color as I perceive it, this is this shape as I perceive it, uh, without any question of, okay, what does that mean to somebody else? That I, okay, I perceive it this way, what does my perceiving it this way have to do with you? You know, where's the meeting point of those two things? And I see that as um, the reason for there to be art which is political, is to uh, develop this meeting point between ourselves and each other, you know. You use the street in, in your work, um, whether it's creating placards for, for demonstrations or stencils, uh, a lot of your... Uh, work has traveled the world as as pieces of stencil art uh, that people have reproduced in different countries. Um, that interaction between art and the street, uh, can you talk about that a bit? Um, when I first came to New York, what I first, like I grew up in Cleveland, and Cleveland was was and is a city which has been in a state of decline for a long time, a slow decline in which um, more and more people are leaving, the population is lower as time goes on, uh, and I remember an incredible quiet in the streets in Cleveland. Um, 
And what I loved coming to New York was how everywhere I went, I was confronted with people's expression in some form or another, whether it was like a billboard or a piece of graffiti or a flyer. Um, there was constantly somebody, something saying, hey, here I am, look at me, and then people, all these different people, all their faces, all their expressions, constantly. So um, that street I find really exciting. And um, in the 80s in particular, we had sort of a movement of street art because we had, um, we had a lack of policing in New York, and you could paint on the wall, and you could get away with it. And we all did. And um, I was completely blown away by the subway graffiti. And particularly because what was happening in the art galleries in um, the 70s and 80s was very sterile. And then you went into the subway and you saw this very expressionistic, colorful, lively, cartoony art on the subways. And you're like, wow, that's real art. You know, that's what I want to do. And it, um, brought together a lot of different things. It brought together a certain element of cartooning and a certain element of abstraction and a certain element of representation in a way that, you know, people in fine art were having trouble doing. So that, um, you know, that was a big inspiration. And then first the graffiti artists and then people like Richard Hamilton, uh, Keith Haring, um, David Wanrovich, all doing street art here. Michael Roman, in particular, his really amazing uh, stencils of skeletons. So I started doing some street art also at that time and did a lot of posters and did a lot of stencil work. Um, it is harder to do that now because law enforcement is became far more draconian under Giuliani. I really respect um, Banksy and Shepard Ferry for keeping that up you know, um, that, you know, they're constantly tagging and they've been doing that since the 90s when it became difficult to do that here. I don't do that as much, but it still informs my aesthetics a great deal that, um, you know, what you get when you do poster work is you have something that has to be seen from a distance. It's going to be seen quickly. You know, a person's not going to spend all day looking at it. They're not going to take it home. And it's also going to be damaged. You know, other things are going to be pasted over it. It's going to have weather wear on it. People are going to try to wash it off. So what you have to have is got to be simple enough and bold enough that it holds up with all of that stress and can still be read. And so the idea of communicating very clearly and very simply um, and looking for these sort of broad, iconic images that are easily understood, all of that inform my work just as um, printing technology, particularly 20th century printing technology, which was very poor compared to what you have now, um, also inspired my work. The fact that you need to get an image which, when poorly printed, will still be understandable. Um, that you know you're not going to get in the final product, what you put into the original, you're going to lose a lot. So can you put enough there, clearly enough and strongly enough, that you won't lose all of it? Mm -hmm. And can you eliminate those elements which will turn into noise when they're badly reproduced? And, you know, so you get this very clear, defined image. Um, and all of that 
is, again, part of trying to reach out between my subjectivity and yours, is trying to produce something you can understand, you can relate to, um, that becomes something we have in common. One of your iconic images is you don't have to fuck people over to survive, um, which I've recently been seeing reproduced, that, that idea or the, the, the text in different types of images and posters. Um, could you talk about the essence of that piece? Um, yeah. Um, that's a piece I came up with in... Um, Oh, and you can say that on radio in Canada, huh? You don't have to fuck people over to survive. I'm glad to be on Canadian radio. Because um, you can't say that on radio in the United States. Um, that's an image I came up with in the 80s. And it really dealt with... Um, it was a series of stencils, and it really dealt with the overall cynicism of the Reagan period. Um, that... Um, you know, I mean, there was a superficial idealism to the Reagan period of, like, believing in all kinds of fairy tale stuff of us against the Russians and, you know, um, um, you know, it's morning in America. But nobody really believed that. Really nobody did. Everybody kind of knew that we're doing this because this is the way the world is. And, you know, um, you know, that, you know, the world is... Uh, you know, the, the, the world is a meat market, the world is a rat race, the world is um, an endless war of all against all, and we're not going to mess around with trying to um, have any moral standards because it, that's simply a disadvantage in a world that works this way. And that was a big part of that period. And um, I wanted to debate that, to argue with that, but at the same time I wanted to argue with it in a form that would have credibility in the environment I was in. So, you know, I sort of combined very violent imagery and very kind of crude language with um, an attempt to find some kind of moral center. Um, like a lot of the imagery in that series comes from sadomasochism, comes from the clubs, comes from skinhead culture and hardcore culture. Um, and the style is very hard-edged. And the language is, of course, very, you know, um, very short, simple statements. Um, you know, very, very much street English. Um, and yet I'm trying to ascertain that there is a basis for a common morality and a common set of ethics and values and that's sort of what I was struggling with and I was struggling with it not only in other people I was struggling with it in myself as well and my own feelings of fear and desperation and feelings that I needed to look out for myself you know in ways that were not necessarily ethical so I had to you know, write those, write, it was written as much to myself as it was to other people. That was a conversation with Seth Tabachman, celebrated New York City street artist. I recorded that in the Lower East Side of New York. I did want to share an archive featuring Seth's work. I really think it's uh, striking and also uh, moving to see the trajectory of Seth's contributions as an artist to social movements over generations. You can find him at sethtabachman.com. So thanks to Seth for being on the show, and I'm really happy to share this from the archives today. 
Free City Radio uh, is out every Wednesday, um, a new podcast. We broadcast also on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM. And starting in April, we'll be on CJLO at 16.90 a.m. on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock. And also, now we are broadcasting on CKUW in Winnipeg uh, at 95.9 FM. Uh, So thanks to CKUW Campus Community Radio in Winnipeg, Treaty 1 Territory, homeland of the Métis Nation, which will also now be hosting Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph. You can reach me anytime, S-T-E-F-A-N dot C-H-R-I-S-T-O-F-F at gmail.com, SoundCloud. Look us up, Free City Radio. We're also on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for being with us. And I will go out uh, with a piece of music by a friend of Seth DeBachman's who also lives in the Lower East Side, Cat Power. Talk to you next week. Take care.